we're moved when stories of forgiveness and redemption are real. When it's not just a story. For Real Life Church, who we are, and that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, who we are, what makes up Real Life Church, what have we been called to do. And Real Life Church is a church that believes that redemption is real. Forgiveness is real. It's not just a theology. It's not just a teaching. I believe the world is often confused by seeing theology and not seeing churches where redemption is real. Because we, we live in a world where people, what they do is people write off other people, don't they? That's what they do. People write off other people outside of the church and sadly, even worse, inside the church, sometimes that's what happens, is that people write off other people. That's what people do, but that's not what God does. God does not write people off. That's not what Scripture teaches us. And so today, who we, who we are, what we'll talk about is that for us, redemption, forgiveness, must be real. We can't have the attitude of the older brother and the rest of that story. That story that you saw was a, a visual representation of the prodigal son, of the father continually looking and longing for his son to come home. But what happens when he comes home, and we're going to turn there, and, and if, uh, if you guys want to put that scripture on the screen, you can, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to purposely pull it up in your Bibles today. Sometimes when it's on screen, we don't think about that, or on your phones. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15 to begin with, and Luke chapter 15 is the story of the prodigal son. And the story of the prodigal son, of course, the son comes home, the father's been, been eagerly looking for him, it says, or we see that he had been looking for him. And the father is excited when he comes home to the point that he throws a party. But the older brother has this different attitude. Essentially, he doesn't understand how, after his brother has done so much wrong, how the father could throw a party for his brother. That's not what he deserves, right? What he deserves is a, see, I told you so. What he deserves is, see, all the, after all this time, don't you realize how you've ruined your life? And, and just those kinds of conversations, not a party. But if we look at verse 25 through 32, let's see what the older brother says. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. What's going on? And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. Why? He's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His brother comes home, two different responses. The father's excited, but the brother's angry. There's a party going on, his brother's home. I'm not going in. And his father came out and entreated him, saying, You know, come into the party, basically. But he answered his father and said, Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, listen to his tone. When the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, but now he's found. We cannot have the attitude of the older brother. Real life church cannot have the attitude of the older brother. He was literally angry at his father's kindness. One of the things we talk a lot about on Sunday mornings is this built-in mentality for 
vengeance and revenge sometimes that we have, and we see it. And in, in, there's another movie I just saw coming out um, called Peppermint. I don't know if anybody has seen this advertised, but it's kind of like another uh, version of a movie essentially where something happened to this lady's daughter, and so now she's coming back for vengeance. It's payday, and she's coming back, and you see, you know, the typical scene with this, there's this guy cowering, and she's got, you know, kind of the gun ready for vengeance, for revenge, right? Because that's what they what? That's what they deserve. <laughs> that's what we're thinking, right? That's what they deserve. He was angry at his father's kindness. This is not what my brother deserves. I've been here faithful, doing all this stuff. My brother's run off, spent all the money, wild living, comes home, and you throw him a party? That's not how it works. That's not how the what works. Fill in the blank. It's not how the world works, right? It's interesting as we read through here, it says that he wouldn't even call him his brother. This son of yours... It's like he'd already written off his brother. This son of yours, he's not my brother. And then you see himself pat himself, which is what we typically see, pat himself on the back. I, I've been here, I've been faithful all along. I've never done these things like your son. I've never done those things. And he pats himself on the back and he kind of elevates his self-righteousness. And in so doing, though, he misses the entire point because the father's perspective is very, very different than the son's. He says this, he says, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead, but now what? He's alive. He was lost. But now he's found the perspective of the brother versus the father in two completely different places. The brother's looking for vengeance and, and for him to get his due, and I told you so. But God is looking. God, of course, is, represents the father in this parable. He is looking for people to come home. He is looking for the opportunity to celebrate what once was dead and is now alive. He is looking forward to redemption. He is looking forward to forgiveness. In fact, it is his greatest desire is to see that kind of transformation. He takes pleasure in redemption. He takes pleasure in forgiveness. He is the ultimate repurposer. That's what he does. And the question that we have and the reason that we go through these things is for us as a church to be more like Jesus. And in this case, when a sinner repents and seeks redemption, how good are you at forgiveness? How good are you at being a part of the process of redemption? What is your response when people come home? It's a good question. Because a church can't be a people that only talk a good game about grace and forgiveness, can we? Talking a good game is what we see, unfortunately. We see people talk about grace. We see people talk about forgiveness. We see people talk about redemption in the church. But unfortunately, we don't see that played out sometimes. We need to be a church, indeed, where that is true, where it's not just theology, it's not just a teaching, but it's real. You know, two examples have, have come to my mind this week that I want to share with you to kind of test that thought, to kind of test that theory. The standard typical response, and Diane and I had a conversation with a friend of ours about a particular pastor of a very large church who this would apply to, and, and actually there's a, a few churches that this is taking place in right now that are, that are large churches, but the standard, typical response, and let me say I'm not offering excuses for individuals that have sinned, that have fallen, okay? But the standard, typical response of a church to a pastor, for example, who's failed morally in some way is to do what? Is to get rid of them. You were our leader, but you know what? You screwed up. You're gone. 
And so the church essentially is uh, anyone in any kind of leadership capacity. If you're in a leadership, you must be held on this pedestal. You must be considered perfect. And if you're not, if you ever show a crack or big cracks in a lot of these cases, well, then you're gone. We have to find somebody else we can put up here. That person falls and they're not quite measured up. We've got to find somebody else to put up here. Of course, the obvious question is, why isn't Jesus there to begin with, right? Because we know he's the only perfect individual. So rather than a church, for example, no matter how long the process, couldn't there be, shouldn't there be a path of redemption, of forgiveness, of a restoration where we realize, yes, this man, this, this leader has failed, but instead of kicking them out of the church, wouldn't it be better to actually provide a path of forgiveness and redemption for that pastor to go through to humble himself, to seek forgiveness, to make things right with God, however long the process, and to eventually be restored to the calling and position that God's given him. But instead, we look for perfection. We look for people and we, we immediately have that attitude of the older brother. Well, you've done wrong. You deserve this. And we are very good at pointing because, hey, they're leaders. But not turning any fingers at all towards ourselves because we're looking, it seems, in that position for perfection. Is that redemption? Is that what redemption looks like? Is that forgiveness? Is that what forgiveness and grace looks like? Is that a true picture of what Jesus is calling us to be? That's a difficult scenario, right? It's not an easy conversation. And again, the, 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 the question goes back when you raise something like this, you know, and, and you see the conversation, Romans and Paul talks about this, well, well, if, if grace is there, if we have grace, then people will just take advantage of it and do whatever they want. And that's kind of what the brother's perspective was, though. How can you have a party for this guy? You gave him half of your inheritance. You weren't even dead yet. He ran off and just spent it on all kinds of stuff, blew it and prostitutes and this, that, and the other, and then he comes home and you're going to throw him a party? Shouldn't he go stand in the corner for a while at least? What, what are we doing here? But God's perspective is different because it's not like the world's, is it? This is no surprise. When we try to be like Jesus, when we consider what Jesus does in Scripture, we always see a challenge. Jesus, how can you be loving like that? How can you be forgiving? How can you be gracious? How can you, how can you do these kinds of things? This is not what the world does. But that's what's so compelling about Jesus. Because it's good news, it's hope for the rest of us, because the true reality is everybody, and the Bible teaches this, we'll look at in a moment, everybody's sinned. Everybody. There's no one that belongs in that pedestal. There's another story that's come up this week. This is really tough. It's a really big challenge. This past week, and you might have seen it in the news, There's a horrible story of a young woman who gave birth in her car to a baby girl. And I know this is going to be really hard for you since you just had a baby girl. She's 21 years old, had, gave birth to a baby, and literally put the child in a trash bag. Baby was later on found by authorities dead. We don't know all the rest of the story. We don't know the details to why or what might have been going through her mind, any of that kind of stuff. But as you can imagine on social media, the comments. It's horrible. It's, it's devastating. It's wrong. And your, your gut reaction is to become angry. Your gut reaction is to, you know, especially a, a, new, a new father, I can imagine your thoughts. But... On, on social media, I think Diane had, had seen, you know, all kinds of just nasty comments on this girl that are uns clearly unspeakable in church. And many, of us, and many of us would simply say, well, that's justified. How could you? And I am in no way saying it's right. You clearly will never hear me say that. 
But here's the situation. If she was able to, what would your response be if she walked into service this morning? What would your response be? See, that's when it gets real. That's when it goes beyond teaching and, and knowledge and theology to practice. Does your practice match your theology? Is it really true that God can forgive anybody? Is redemption really true for everyone and not just certain others that have only sinned maybe this much? We have levels in our mind. This is an acceptable sin we can deal with. This is, eh, boy, you're really getting close to the line. And then this, there's no way. This person cannot be forgiven, right? This person is irredeemable. Because all we see is that, is that sin. All we see is that horrendous thing. And this is a, a prime example because this just happened this past week. How do you deal with that? And everything we want to do is to call into question, well, why'd she walk into the service? She can't be seriously here. I don't know. It's a tough and almost unfair thing to just drop on you, isn't it? But you know the things that the Lord has considered over the span of time? The evil things that people have done? The sin that He's taken upon Him? In fact, we find in, in Scripture a list of people today that what would we do with Moses today? What would we do with David? David especially, right? David committed adultery. He committed murder to cover up his adultery. What would we do with Moses? Moses committed murder. Rahab was a prostitute. And yet these people are, are continually mentioned in Scripture and lifted up as biblical what? Biblical heroes. And there's only one reason, is because of God. God is the only one that can change the story. He's the only one that can truly forgive and to allow the words that we say every Sunday that the old is indeed gone. And the new has come. It's either real or it's not. I'm going to tell you, our, our world is looking for churches that believe that that's true. Because when you've messed up, more than messed up, messed up isn't even a strong enough word for some of the stories we've shared this morning. What do you do then? Where do you go? If, if there is no hope for forgiveness, if there is no hope for change, if there is no light, if this young woman ever begins to think like that and think, I, I, I don't know what I've done. And, and if you look at this person, they, they were a church-going person, had Scripture on their side. You, know, you, don't, you don't understand what happened. But if this person comes to a point of, of, of seeking forgiveness, of seeking redemption, where would she ever go? I know that the, the boyfriend, for example, had nothing to do with that. Yet people are ready to kill him, strangle him, and blame him. How could you allow this to happen? He didn't even know. But you understand my point? Maybe we'll never be at that, see here, it's already levels, right? Level of screwing up so big. But if, if, if you are, where do you go? Is there a group of people, is there anyone who will ever love this woman again? can offer forgiveness to this woman. Is there a path of redemption for even her? And the only possibility has to be in a church, it has to be with Jesus. That's so radical. The rest of the world, they cannot forgive someone like that. It's impossible to them. The only possibility for forgiveness and redemption and hope for someone that's done something like that is the grace of God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It has to be fleshed out and real. And my hope here for Real Life Church is whatever 
the scenario that we would be a place that offers forgiveness, hope, and love, even in the most dire of circumstances. Because you see that with Jesus. You just simply see that with Jesus. Could we offer forgiveness, for example? There are clearly some churches out there that I I know of, that I've heard of in the news, that offer forgiveness like that. One example uh, in recent memory is like the church members of Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston who forgave a guy named Dylan Roof, even though as they forgave him in the middle of a courtroom, he sat unmoved. Can you be a church... Can you be a person like that? Because Jesus, again, he doesn't, he doesn't make it easy because he believes what he's saying. He's God. Forgiveness is real. Redemption is real. And we can choose to participate with Christ in what he teaches and believes and tells us to do or not. But a church, children of God, called out believers and saints because of the Holy Spirit are called to do that. Again, redemption must be real. You know, the last story, last story that I shared is clearly an extreme for us and what we encounter on a regular basis. But what about within the church even now? Again, I don't believe there are levels, but we have a tendency to think that way. What in, what in smaller ways? So, you know, someone had a conversation with someone at church, and then, so then now there's a grudge. Can there be forgiveness there? Something happened at home, and so-and-so says something to so-and-so, and now there's a, there's a division. Someone wanted to be in leadership at the church, and, and, but they didn't feel like that person should be in leadership, and they were known there's a, there's a bitterness there or any number of things within the church, within families, you understand things that pull people away. There are things that are are causing bitterness in our hearts or separation. And I want you to look at this verse in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. In Galatians 5, 13, that's just give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles, to punch in the buttons on your phone. Galatians chapter 5, once you get there, we're going to be, it talks about freedom. We were called to freedom, and the only way that we have freedom is through forgiveness. In Galatians 5.13, it says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. And then he addresses the elephant that we think you know, that comes up in the room. Only, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. God never says, because I've given you grace, that it's okay to do whatever. But it is there. And that's the risk of love, isn't it? That's the risk of grace. You know, uh, a, a, a parent, a, 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 consider a couple who has a son who's uh, a drug abuser. But you feel like the, the, you want to help the son to, to get on their feet again or do whatever. And, and so you give them money for, for food, for gas, for whatever. If they choose not to use it for that, that's a risk. But if we never offer that grace, we never offer the opportunity, we won't have the other opportunity to see that son actually get the job, actually move forward, actually grow and, and change. Our fear is, well, that person's just going to use it for whatever. We do that on the streets with the homeless even. And that's really hard because typically 90% of the time it is used for, for sinful things, for things that are not helpful, just from personal experience and understanding that area. But it's not always that way. Loving and grace is a risk. But you know what? It really isn't even a risk. It's, it's, it's a calling that we have as believers in Christ. That person is going to make their choices. But what we're called to do is to love and to extend grace. And so we find this in Galatians 5, 13. You're called to freedom, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't abuse it. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, right? And we've talked about this recently. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember? Love God and love what? Help me out. 
I'll just say others, but yeah, your neighbor. Love God, love others. We had a whole sermon series on this. It's fulfilled in this. But then it says this, and this is very key, especially to the church. But, look at this, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Doesn't that happen a lot in church? Watch out. You're supposed to be loving one another. You're supposed to be extending grace and love to each other. Instead, you find yourself in a church that bites and devours one another, that chews each other up and spits one another out. I've been in places like that. And because of places like that, it was many, there's several times in my life I did not want to be in ministry ever again. But no matter how much I want to run away from that, every stinking time God drags me back. It'd be so much easier not to worry about it. Just having, I told God sometimes, I just want a normal job. You know, I just want a, I just want a regular job. Be careful. We are called to love one another. We're called to, to extend grace to each other. Watch out. Don't bite and devour one another because you will clearly consume each other. We need to be reminded of some scriptures on forgiveness this morning. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, which has always been a verse that's, that's quite haunting. My sister and I, and I, you've heard me share this story before, we used to used to yell this to each other all the time after we get into an argument. I get into an argument now, and maybe I had done something stupid and wrong. I go to my sister, Christy, please forgive me, and she'd be just, Pleh. you know, nothing to do with me. And I would quote this verse to her where it says in, in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, but if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Here's the scary one. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, their sins, that's a fancy word for sins, okay? Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And I would say to Hannah, I would kind of like use it like a blunt instrument to her. Hannah, if you don't forgive me, God can't forgive you. But that's a pretty stiff verse, isn't it? If you cannot forgive, God cannot forgive you. And then we go to Ephesians 4.32. Let's turn there. Turn to the right. Let me see another good example. These are refreshers. These are not verses you haven't heard before. I'm convinced that the biggest job of a preacher is, is to be the chief reminder I don't come up with new stuff. If I did, you need better kick me out. It's, it's all coming from here. It's the chief reminder. Do you remember what it says here? Remember what it says there? Because we forget. i got to keep going back to stuff and, and, remind, and, and reminding myself of things when I feel led to this direction or it's wrong or i got to get my head straight. What does Scripture say? So in Ephesians 4.32, this is what it says. It says to be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. We could just stop there even and just chew on that for a while. Be kind. Be tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. To what extent of forgiveness shall you show one another? Jesus set the example. Never did anything wrong. He didn't complain about it. He died for us. That's, in worldly terms, crazy. Why would you do that? We're called to forgive in the same way that Christ forgave us. Now, it's a little easier to forgive, again, and I mentioned this earlier, when we remember something pretty key. When we remember this is that we are all of us. Perspective is important. All of us are sinners. I don't know if anyone's told you that yet. I'm sure that you've told Eric this, right? So Eric's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, we're all sinners. And the typical thing preachers do is point to a verse. And so here's one you probably ought to have memorized, Romans 3.23. 
Yeah. It says, for all, that means everybody, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, you're not as good as God. Everyone doesn't meet that criteria. You've all sinned. You've all messed up. But see, what comes up in conversations, though, sometimes, like the story we just mentioned, is, yeah, I've sinned, but... Say that with me. Yeah, I've sinned, but... Not as much as the lady we talked about. Not as much as that pastor we talked about. And so we create levels. You create levels, whether you admit it or not. You might say theologically there are no levels, but in your mind there are levels. You know, you can forgive people up to a certain point in your life, and you see it in your practice. I can forgive this person, but the other person, and it's, it's interesting in families, children learn this from their parents. You know, uh, we don't hang out with this person anymore. We don't talk to this person anymore because of that time. And maybe they don't even, kids don't even know, but they sense it from their own parents. We don't talk to so-and-so anymore. You know, in, in movies, and maybe the words have actually been spoken in your household, that person is what? You're dead to me. Right? You're dead to me. Yeah, we've all sinned, but not like that. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Let's look at James chapter 2. In the book of James, we, and that's to the right again, after Hebrews. In the book of James, we find a, a book where God gave James the ability to really lay it out there pretty plain. And he kind of handles the yeah, but. We're going to look at James chapter 2, verse 8. Is everybody with me? So in James 2, 8, it says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, for example, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And he uses a, what we would probably consider, compared to those things, a lower sin on the ladder, okay, which doesn't exist again, but nonetheless. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, okay? In other words, this person is better than this other person. He was talking in James at one point, you know, about bringing the rich people to the front of the church, you know, giving them a seat of honor and keeping the other ones we don't care in the back because you don't give as much money, you know. Only the ones in the front. So he says, you shall love your neighbor yourself, you're doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. If you do the law, great. If you do this, he just gives an example, then you're sinning. Partiality is wrong. And this is key. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, you know, kind of like the big brother and looks at himself, hey, I've been doing great. I have been faithful to you, Father. I've taken care of all your sheep and oxen and all that kind of stuff. Never threw a party for me. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, just one, has become accountable for all of it. Just one sin, you do everything right, but you do one sin, you know what? You've still broken everything. It's still fallen apart. You know, it's, it's like this, this huge thing of Jango with only one set of blocks, and no matter where you pull it out, it's still going to fall down. It's still going to fall apart. If you have sinned in one area at all, you've broken the entire law. Look at what he says. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. It doesn't matter what the sin is. He puts adultery and murder on the same level. There's our levels, right? 
There aren't, it's, a, it's a single level. Do you think adultery and murder are equal? Isn't that what we always say? I might have done this, but I haven't. I haven't killed anybody. Because that's at the top, right? You can do anything else and that can be forgiven, but you can't kill anybody. I've never done that. James takes this and this and brings them together. If you've broken one, you've broken it all. It's like it doesn't matter how the glass fell off the table, how many flips it took, what direction it went, it still fell on the floor and it smashed to pieces. There's no levels. It says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. God views things differently now because of Jesus. There is a law of liberty, of freedom, of grace. It's again all because of what Jesus has done. And it says this, for judgment without mercy. For judgment, excuse me, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. The same level of mercy you show will be shown to you. Or the same level of the lack of mercy you show will be shown to you. And I love this, this last part. It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, in, the, in this world, we're going we're gonna to encounter the opposite. Judgment's going to triumph over mercy because of people, because of humanity. But again, in every aspect of life, the most important thing, the thing that matters the most, what's really, truly real, is Jesus. In the end, mercy will triumph over judgment. That's huge. We're almost done. Another passage we're going to look in Matthew 7. Turn left again. Thinking about mercy triumph, triumphing over judgment. Keep that in your head as we begin to look at Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Remember, this is to gain perspective. This is to remind ourselves of who, what position we are in as well. When we consider offering forgiveness and redemption and grace like God's called us to. We need perspective. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, we're reminded of this passage. It says, Judge not, that you be not judged. And this is scary. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Have you ever found yourself doing something a few minutes later that you just cussed somebody else at for doing earlier? Maybe not earlier, maybe the day before. You know, my perennial example is traffic. I get irritated when people cut me off. Do I cut people off? Have I done it? Yeah, and then I realize afterwards I'm an idiot. And I kind of want to apologize and do something, you know. But the same way that you, the same judgment you use for others, wouldn't it be scary if that same judgment was used towards you? The same measure of mercy, the same measure of love and grace that you offer to others. What, what is that like for you? Kind of goes to the golden rule too, right? Treat others as you would want them to do what? Treat you. But God's really serious here, and Jesus says this, that the same kind of pronouncements, the same kind of judgments and you use, they will be measured to you as well. And then he says this, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Right? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. It's a really key verse again on perspective. How is it that you can overlook this huge log in your eye to go and, and to target someone who has something in theirs, a small speck? That's what Jesus had such an issue with the Pharisees for, because the Pharisees were out of control, but they were just going after people. 
They didn't understand that grace. They didn't understand that love, the, the measure of judgment and forgiveness that we were talking about here. How can you do that? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? He says, you hypocrite, <clears throat> first take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I don't think this is just a quick thing. Half the time, the people that need to remove logs from their eye don't even realize it's there. They keep ignoring it, and they've ignored it for so long. You know, they've just become, oh, thank you, great, you know, great Savior. We're not talking about Jesus here, but this other person is coming, and thank you for pointing out this and this and this and this and this and this. You know, to ever get to that point, the log would need to be removed. But you know what? For some people that have a log that big, it's going to be in a, uh, forever, and it's probably going to take until the Lord comes back for some of these people to remove the log. Are we ever, I don't know if we're ever in that place that we can see clearly. I said, I don't know. I'm not saying that definitively. But are you, have you found yourself in a place where you feel like your eye is clear to go help someone else with their speck? Unsolicited? Because it seems like there's always something in my life. You know, finally, Lord, help me with this, and I've got this under control, but then, doggone it, there's something else. Now I'm struggling with this attitude, or I'm struggling with language, or I'm struggling with, I don't know, whatever it is. There's always something. Because God's doing that by the work of His Holy Spirit. He's continuing to bring up stuff. All right, you dealt with this, let's get this straight. He's carving, he's chiseling, he's changing from the inside out. There's always something there. Are you, is there ever a moment where your eye is clear enough to see, to help with someone else's speck? I'm like, Lord Jesus, help me just to get down to a speck. I think for many of us, there's a forest in our eyes. How blind are we? How dare we? How dare we go after someone that has a speck? Who the heck do we think we are? Thank God for Jesus. Perspective is important. We need to realize that we've all sinned. We need to realize where we stand. We need to realize, most importantly, what we all need, and that's Christ. In Colossians I'm just going to read through this, 125 through 27. It talks about, thanks be to God. It says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. It has nothing to do with you, your effort. It has to do with Christ in you, who is the hope of glory. We make this mistake thinking that we're good enough and we can, we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps if we can get things down and we can check off the boxes and we can finally be good enough to help someone with their speck. It has nothing to do with human effort. The Bible teaches that it's Christ in us, the hope of glory, the Holy Spirit in us that's the hope of glory. Of glory. John chapter 15, write this down if you're taking notes to look at later, talks about abiding in Christ. Because it says if you're not, you can do, here's the word, nothing. You can't do it without Jesus because you know why? He's the one that does it. You are, whether you realize it or not, dependent upon Jesus to live the kind of life He's called us to live. It might be better to let Jesus address the people with the specks in their eye. I want to look at one final verse that we had talked about last week in this context. Turn again to Romans chapter 8. As we consider Christ in us, the hope of glory, we have to realize and be reminded of this passage. And I, I've been really spending a lot of time going over this. This is the passage we get excited about at the beginning of chapter 8 because it says there's now no condemnation 
for those who are, here's the word, in Christ Jesus. It's because of Jesus there's no condemnation. Not because you've done good stuff, not because you've come to church, not because you've finally gotten your devotion straight. Good for you, Lance. Pat yourself on the back since January. You've been going strong, but you know what? It has nothing to do with you. Uh, you finally stopped, you know, dealing with traffic. Great. Even if I got to that point, Madonna, right? I wouldn't be where I need to be. It's because of Jesus. It's not because of me. Any changes in me, all the glory goes to God, all goes to Jesus. It's not because of human effort. We see that in Ephesians, it says, so that God says, it's all because of me, the grace is from me, I've done it because you, so that you can't even begin to pat yourself on the back. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Abide in Christ or you can do nothing. In Romans 8, verses 5 through 6, it says this, it says, For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds in the things of the flesh. If, if you're living sinfully, it's because your mind's in that place. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Christ in us, the hope of glory. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? It's what? It's death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is what? It's life and it's peace. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Set my mind on Him. Let Him abide within me is what that's saying. He's the one that's in control. He's, it's all about Him, letting Him do His thing. Lord, take my mind, work within me. If that's the case, we have life and peace. Because we look at our bodies, we look at ourselves, and we say, how will I ever look like Jesus? How will I ever begin to do the right things? Look at this last passage in verse 11. We've read this so many times, but it says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. We're talking about, again, Christ in us, the hope of what? Hear that verse, Christ in us, the hope of glory. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. It's because of the Spirit of God, it's because of Christ in us that we have hope, that we have the hope of glory, the hope of change, the hope of transformation. It is not because of you. You can't do it. But if you let Him, He will change you. At our men's group, we talked about this, and it's a matter of cooperation. You know, one of the things I've gotten involved with with David back there is, is trying to help out with, with DJ stuff. One of the things that guys freak out about and gals freak out about at this time is, is learning how to dance for their wedding, you know? And, you know, I kind of picture in my mind a, a father who's trying to teach his daughter how to dance and, and he says, climb up on my feet holds her hands and she puts her feet on his. And all of a sudden she can dance, can't she? She knows all the steps because she's just got her feet on daddy's. That's cooperation. When you dance with the father, he makes all the moves. But too many times we're not cooperating. We're not keeping our feet on his. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. He has to dance. He has to take the lead. Not you. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That same hope is available to all. There's no one that's too far from the grace of God. Would you stand?
This morning, I want to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for a second, and think about someone you're having a hard time forgiving. Think about someone that maybe you've had a grudge towards. Think about someone that your heart is, is angry about, it's in strife. And give that to God right now. Could you just talk with them? What a victory it would be for you to walk out of here applying what Scripture just taught us this morning, what the Lord taught us. The redemption is real. Where you stand, the Spirit of God indwells you. He lives within you. He can bring life to your mortal bodies. He can provide the motivation for that forgiveness, for that heart change, that mind change, all that is within us that we struggle with. Lord Jesus, we come to you realizing, Lord, that you have always been our biggest need. Lord, may we cooperate with your spirit. Lord, may our feet stay upon yours. Lord, may you be the one who leads. Lord, be the king, as we sang earlier, of our hearts. Let us be a church, Lord, where redemption is real. We love you. And we're thankful, so thankful, that your redemption for us was real. Thank you again that the old is gone. It's really gone. And the new has come. Because of you, we are different people. And we're thankful. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody in agreement says, Amen. Amen.